Welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. This is Phil Harvey. I'm an editor here at Light Reading, and I'm joined on this podcast by my colleague, Kelsey Zeiser. And today we have two guests on the show. We have Morgan Kirk. He's the Executive Vice President and CTO for Comscope. Also from Comscope, we have Dave Wright. He is the Director of Regulatory Affairs and Network Standards. On this show, we'll be talking about broadband access in rural America and the importance of reducing latency and service provider networks. And we'll talk about how Comscope, one of our uh, leading lights company of the year finalists, is uh, uh, addressing these issues, both on the regulatory side uh, with a little bit of explanation around the Universal Service Fund and how that can be uh, reformed, and also on the technology side. Uh, Special thanks to Avast for sponsoring today's podcast, and uh, we will get to the interview right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Avast, global leaders in digital security for network operators. They can build a safer digital world for your customers and their families. Discover more at avast.com slash partners. That's A-V-A-S-T dot com slash partners. And welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm joined today by Kelsey Zeiser. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Phil. And our guests today are Dave Wright. Hey, Phil. And Morgan Kirk from Comscope. Hey, thanks for having us here today. Hello, glad you could make it, and uh, and thank and thanks for being on. So we're talking about um, broadband access, but more importantly, uh, rural broadband and how uh, how it's being delivered, and how to get more of it, and and how to reach more people with better internet access. And what I mean by better, I guess, is um, it goes to eleven. Yeah, it goes to 11. It's super fast and it just blows your hair back each time. <laughs> but um, but also, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, we hear the term digital divide a lot and that's kind of a shorthand for saying that, you know, in most of the country, it's really hard to provide broadband because it's such a, you know, geographically monstrously big place. The pandemic has kind of accelerated our... Uh, broadband problems and given us kind of a new way of looking at it. Um, so as we're looking at, you know, what's happened in the pandemic, um, how are, uh, how do you think service providers in general are responding in terms of getting people connected and getting people connected adequately, you know, with, with uh, enough of a, a broadband connection so that they can actually do the things that they're required, like, you know, video conferences and things of that sort. I think that, uh, that the pandemic has shown that the network as it is has been fairly resilient. But as you point out, um, it doesn't extend to everywhere, particularly to more rural areas. Um, uh, and this has made for this digital divide where a lot of people can't work. And so I think service providers have been uh, trying to expand their networks in the geographic areas that they already cover. Um, uh, out a little bit into their footprint, so um, not hugely extensive, but but I think they will be doing that in the future as some of these additional grants come online. That's for the traditional uh, folks who have been putting hybrid fiber coax DOCSIS systems in or, or PON systems in. 
and I think uh, we're we're starting to see the beginnings of a uh, of a secondary event, which is a wireless overlay, um, uh, which is born out of uh, new spectrum being um, being put into play in uh, the three well between three and four gigahertz uh, right now CBRS and soon the C band. Um, which will allow the operators to operate in those in that spectrum also to um, provide high-speed service, perhaps in rural areas that where where it wasn't economic in the past. Yeah, the the, the CBRS spectrum does seem to be a bit of a. Um, uh, I think a lot of people are looking forward to that, and then there's also a couple of satellite uh, projects that are just getting going that uh, seem like they'll solve some of these issues. Um, yeah, th- those are, those are interesting. The, the new Leo satellites, uh, for sure are, uh, are an interesting, um, uh, idea that's just forming and we'll, we'll see how that goes as a competitor to, uh, these land-based systems. Yeah. The C- CBRS, I guess, is going to be the more immediate one. Um, it, you know, in terms of making a difference because that allows for, uh, like you said, wireless, uh, kind of service providers to augment their, the wireless services they already offer, and then also reach, uh, possibly reach new subscribers. A question sort of off the back of that is what are some ways that, uh, you know, the universal service fund is out there, you know, in the U S that allows for, um, uh, network providers to tap a tap into some funds to help them build out these networks. Um, how are, you know, how are service providers working to reform that fund and maybe improve it so that it can, you know, really address, um, everyone in, 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 you know, who needs broadband because there's, there seems to be, um, not just a lot of people left behind, but there also seems to be a lot of issues with, you know, like the FCC and other agencies, not even really being completely sure that they're, you know, that their maps are accurate or that they know how many people can't connect at the speeds that one needs to connect at? Yeah, Phil, it's a great question. This is Dave. I'll jump in on that one and see if Morgan has anything to add. But um, really it's, uh, you know, when you talk about, you know, the, the, the challenges of rural connectivity, I think you and both you and Morgan both highlighted the fact that, you know, this is a complex issue and it's one that we've been talking about at a national level really for a, a long time. So, you know, when we look at USF or Universal Service Fund, that's really a large pool of money which goes to fund a variety of programs. Um, And some of those are focusing on rural connectivity. There was the uh, Connected America Fund or CAF, which we um, went through. And we're just now, I mean, actually, as in uh, today, there was some FCC news about a new program under USF called the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, or RDOF, um, you'll hear it referred to. And so, and and other, again, there are other programs within USF, including things like E-Rate for educational funding, uh, Lifeline for low-income connectivity, but let's kind of focus on the rural piece for a moment. And so the, um, you know, Congress, passed a law uh, enabling um, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. The FCC is uh, 
you know, charged with essentially executing it and has put in place a program to do that. So they're accepting uh, applications. They've actually already accepted the short form applications from entities who, who really want to go out and help build out connectivity um, in the areas where there is no connectivity. And that's, uh, you know, you kind of made a point about the maps and I'll circle back to that in a moment. But, um, you know, programs like that are, are incredibly important in terms of, you know, um, targeting federal investment to the uh, to the to our federal fellow citizens who really don't have a good broadband option today. And um, I think, you know, wisely, the you know, both Congress and the commission are not targeting a certain technology or certain technologies for this. It could be, you know, it could be wired connectivity, it could be wireless, it could be satellite even. They didn't, um, certainly didn't rule out uh, the LEO options. Um, uh, so, you know, all that's in play with RDOF. And, um, and regarding the maps, I mean, there, there's been some, you know, uh, a lot of dialogue, I'll say, uh, in DC about about these maps, and you know, are they accurate? Um, can we rely on those to target this investment um, that's being made through the RDOF program? And again, what the FCC has said is, okay, we're going to we're going to do the initial tranche of funding, which is really you know, sixteen billion dollars. It's going to be funded over ten years. Uh, we're going to use the current broadband maps for that, and then they they. They do, you know, I think at a bipartisan level acknowledge that there's some issues with um, with the granularity of the data in particular that they have currently. So they've made some refinements to the program that is their broadband mapping program. Uh, they're hoping that next year they'll have a little bit, um, you know, more refined information. So, you know, if just one entity within a census tract has broadband, that doesn't mean that, you know, there's broadband throughout the, uh, the entire census tract. So we'll have more granular information next year. And they're hoping to use that more granular information for targeting the phase two of, um, of RDOF. And they haven't scheduled when the auction for that will be. But, um, uh, you know, that's another $4 billion that'll be distributed through phase two. Yeah, so we'll have to stay tuned to see how that pans out. Do you have any other thoughts on what kinds of incentives might support long-term infrastructure that addresses the digital divide? Incentives either for maybe service providers or municipalities, for example? Yeah, I can jump in on that one uh, again. Uh, my, my take is that, you know, again, structuring programs that you know, have longer durations is really helpful. Um, so, you know, one-time funding is great, but, uh, you know, if you set up a program that, you know, is going to last for five or 10 years, then it gives some certainty to, you know, entities who participate in that program, whether it's through an auction or, or other application process that, um, you know, not only are they going to get funds to, to build out with today's technology, but that, you know, there'll be the capability to upgrade those systems over time. Um, so, you know, I think those are important aspects to any program that it's, you know, not just a, a sort of a, a one hit show, but, uh, but is structured, you know, for the longer term. That makes sense. Um, and do you also have any use cases or examples of how Comscope is uh, working with service providers to address some of these rural broadband issues? Yeah, so uh, Dave can follow up on this, but but certainly uh, the, uh, the COVID pandemic kind of uh, left an opportunity for us to work with, uh, with providers to set up um, uh, everything from um, uh, remoting in a neighborhood through through 
putting uh, access on school buses that could drive around and, and create temporary hotspots for, for, for children to working with, um, with some of the MSOs to provide the infrastructure equipment themselves for the, the additional rollouts. Um, I think probably at the beginning of this in the March and April timeframe, this was a huge effort to allow people to finish school when, when we really hadn't had a lot of time to prepare. Um, as we move forward uh, in, in trying to address this, it's, I think com from Comscope's perspective, it's, it's trying to make these installations easier and faster with, uh, with less skill and less equipment where we, we tend to, to try to help the most um, so that uh, they can be deployed in a, uh, in a fast fashion, which also makes them more economical. Yeah, I hadn't heard of the school bus example. That's really interesting and um, kind of a unique way to use uh, existing resources. Um, in yeah, a new yeah an asset like a school bus, if it's not using to bring children to school, right. has, uh, doesn't have a lot of value. So <laughs> right. uh, turning yeah. turning it into a mobile hotspot uh, can can certainly help uh, help in, in a crisis. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure that the kids would love it if once they can go back to school, maybe it would still be a hotspot. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And if I could jump in there, uh, I, you know, I think that's a great example. And, you know, Kelsey, maybe just to highlight the fact that, you know, that also shows Comscope's um, expertise in both on license spectrum with uh, with the Wi-Fi access that Morgan was talking about. But we also tend to combine that with a cellular backhaul solution, right? So, um, you know, we've got a, uh, an integrated LTE backhaul uh, capability there and shows how licensed and unlicensed spectrum, you know, both are helpful in meeting these needs. And uh, I was just going to highlight CBRS. I mean, I know, uh, I think Morgan and Phil already touched on it, but uh, one of my other hats happens to be as the president of the CBRS Alliance. And we certainly see, you know, that CBRS spectrum playing an important role, helping, um, you know, connect the rural unconnected. If you look at the 271 um, entities that were authorized to participate in the auction, you know, a large number, I think even the majority of those were smaller um, wireless internet service providers that tend to operate in relatively, you know, rural areas of the country, Midwest uh, and Midwest in particular. And so it'll be interesting to see once the FCC releases the auction results, um, how many of those smaller, you know, uh, rural WISPs actually obtain the PAL licenses. Um, not that they need PAL necessarily to deliver the rural connectivity. I think the good news is that, you know, once you get out of the metropolitan urban suburban areas, the contention for the spectrum is uh, likely to be less um, anyways. So, you know, when you couple the propagation characteristics of 3.5 gigahertz with the higher powers that you can operate um, at in CBRS with the category B radios in particular, you know, CBRS is, is a nice uh, solution there. And that's another area where Comscope is doing a lot, both on the infrastructure side, but also with our spectrum access system um, that we're providing. We had an announcement not too long ago where, you know, we and uh, Cambium are working together uh, specifically on, on rural connectivity solutions. Excellent. Um, when we're uh, talking about broadband and, you know, I mean, CBRS will be one, uh, like I said, we'll, we're still, we'll sort of wait and see when those systems uh, come online to start using that spectrum. Um, but in the meantime, and, and kind of leading up to that, let's talk about like the quality of of service and the quality of broadband, because there's one thing to say that, you know, just megabytes, uh, megabits per second speeds and feeds kind of thing, you know, 
equals broadband, and we can set that an arbitrary number. But um, most people now, especially with uh, school, uh, you know, in education, they're they're being asked to do um, real time video conferencing and to have multiple windows open and to you know be participating in things that require a low latency connection. Um, how are you uh, sort of addressing that with service providers and and making sure that there's not just adequate bandwidth, but that the bandwidth is good enough to actually achieve, you know, the, the, the end application, which nowadays seems to be, you know, mostly video based. Yeah. So that's, uh, it's, it's interesting how the, the world changes and how it tends to repeat itself. Um, I'm sure, uh, people can remember back to when, uh, laptops were all about, um, how fast your processor was. Right. Every year they yeah. get a faster processor. And I defy anybody today to know or care what the speed of their processor <laughs> is. It's just not an important merit. And this right. with, with laptops, got, this then it, it's written down somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you, you don't know. And that's not why you buy it. You buy it based on a screen size. You buy it based on a form factor. You buy it based on a battery. Uh, we, we've, we've gone on from speed. And I think you're pointing out something that has happened with video, making things real time, which is once you have an adequate amount of speed and adequate is still subjective, um, you then turn to other parameters to determine how quick your network feels and how, how much it can be used for various applications like real time uh, applications like video uh, conference calls, things like this. And, um, so this is a big subject in the industry. It's one of the real terms as to why people uh, move to 5G from 4G is you significantly reduce your latency. In the traditional uh, networks, um, uh, the DOCSIS network, for example, there are initiatives uh, for low latency DOCSIS, which is to drive down the latency in, in that as well. And then in the core of the network, uh, everybody is trying to figure out where to put various things, servers and interconnects and, and data, where it will all be, uh, be located to provide uh, an appropriate amount of latency for the application that's, that's necessary. Believe it or not, beyond um, uh, video calling, I think the, the most sensitive um, thing that we do on the internet today is real-time gaming. And if you ever have a child who is involved with real-time gaming, the first thing they'll do when they set up their equipment is check out their latency. And if it isn't, if their, their latency is, is not low enough, uh, whether it's below 50 or below 30 milliseconds, um, they, they simply won't play because they won't be competitive. So uh, it really has become that tangible um, and, and well-known to, to a great number of the users. Yes, the father of uh, three young adults who all happen to be home with me at the moment. I can absolutely attest and confirm to what Morgan just said about the importance of latency in gaming. Um, and I would just say, Phil, you know, to kind of follow up on that, uh, you know, it's not it's not just your take or Morgan's take that this is increasingly important, um, you know, in addition to speed. But really, that's the FCC's take on it as well. So if you look at how they have done the... Um, 
the the auction process or the reverse auction process for the uh, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund or RDOF. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're actually favoring bids. Um, they're using a weighting system essentially favors bids that provide higher speed or and or lower latency. So uh, it's not just the speed metric anymore. It truly is about you know the overall experience. Oh, that is good news because uh, it, it 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 does matter, especially it's like you know you can get by with a lower uh, speed connection if it's a really uh, you know w- w- uh, I guess well tuned. I'm not sure what the word is, but you know a, a a low latency connection and it stays stays up the entire time. Um, that's it's increasingly important. I I wonder if um, I haven't seen this as much in the wired networks, but I wonder. Uh, because there's still sort of a speeds and feeds marketing battle, but I wonder at some point if service providers will find a way to distinguish themselves by the type of, you know, by how, uh, by the latency on their network versus uh, versus competitors or sort of use it as a, a badge of honor that they, uh, you know, can allow for different types of online gaming and that sort or, of thing. Yeah, or, or charge for it. And and I, I yeah. think that's actually where, where we're going on this, but, you know, I think it's actually important to, to look at what has enabled things. Uh, probably the wireless world is an easier one to look at enablement. If you had 2G, uh, voicing and text was about all you could do. 3G, uh, email, you couldn't even really browse a rich media site. And, and 4G has really been about video. So to continue on and get new applications, uh, all of those had really come to speed and the amount of bandwidth that you had. This next enablement, I think, for things like uh, AI, sorry, for things like um, uh, augmented reality and, um, and virtual reality, these are going to be enabled by um, latency that is fast enough that you don't get that lag, that, that turn your head and then the motion goes with you um, that would make you sick. And, and without it, we're going to have a hard time with those types of applications. And uh, so I see this as critical to driving the next great applications that the world ends up using. It's, it's that important. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think uh, uh, that's a good place to leave it for now. We're, we're uh, just about out of time, but I do appreciate uh, you both being on the podcast. Thanks, uh, Morgan Kirk and Dave Wright from Comscope. Thank you. Thank you. That is it. That's our show. This podcast is produced by the Light Reading Video team, Tian Fu and Pierre Landrio. Thank you, boys, for doing what you do. We do appreciate it. You will find this and all of our other past episodes by visiting www.lightreading.com slash lrpod. That's lightreading.com slash lrpod. Or you can subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcasting app. Uh, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc., etc. Thank you very much for listening to the Light Reading Podcast. Thanks to Avast for their sponsorship this week. Avast's award-winning security solutions make it easy for your customers to stay safe online no matter how many devices they use.
Learn more at avast.com slash partners. That's A-V-A-S-T dot com slash partners.